Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Lizzie Cooperman. I can't masturbate. I'm like, what's going to happen if I use three fingers? Am I going to have a heart attack? That and more. But before that, I just want to say, if you love what we do here on Risk and over at the Story Studio... The support of our fans could not be more crucial to us and could not be more appreciated. I want to give a shout out to Glenn Watts. Thank you so much for your support, Glenn. We always give a shout out to anyone donating $25 or more per month by becoming a member over at patreon.com slash risk. You have access to dozens of hours of bonus content, lots more stories, interviews with staff and storytellers, my own personal check-ins, and now you can finally hear a story unlike any other story we have ever run before. I am not exaggerating. An unforgettable tale by the one and only Bruce Smith. We're not from the planet Earth. And we've come to see if we can gather the genetic material to revitalize our species. Specifically, we'd like to have sex with you tonight. So that very talked about story, a story that was first shared at our last Seattle live show in 2019, I think it was. Uh, You can hear that and many more over at patreon.com slash risk. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they dared to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is James Asher behind me now. (laughs) There's a a fella uh, I was spending some quality time with this weekend who suggested that maybe I should make a playlist of songs to spank him by. (laughs) So, it's been a very tribal weekend. I didn't even know who James Asher was until a couple nights ago, but he's behind me now (laughs) with a track called Drum Dialogue. Speaking of dialogue, come have a dialogue with several fellow Risk fans. Guys, we're doing this Common Core, this facilitated discussion event, where you have one-on-one conversations in Zoom breakout rooms based on provided conversation prompts. It is so much fun. Oh my gosh. I actually was hanging out last weekend with a gal that I met 
at a Common Core, you know, Risk Common Core before. So come join us on May 27th. That's Thursday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. It's free, but go to risk-show.com slash tour to get your reservation. Folks, we're calling this week's episode Trial by Fire. Three fantastic stories. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Rayana Christian Dickens. Now, if that name sounds a little bit familiar, well, it's because Rayana is the first of the children of Ray Christian Sr. to appear on the show. I say the first because... I'm getting the impression this entire family is very full of character. (laughs) Rayana is amazing. (laughs) But before that, a phenomenal story that Kent L. Whipple shared on the show at one of our recent live streams. Kent just knocked me out with this one. And I gotta say, Kent... I just love Kent. (laughs) He does a lot of wonderful work at Unexpected Productions in Seattle and a lot of storytelling around about there as well. You should look him up on Facebook at Kent Storyteller. And without further ado, here he is now. This is Kent L. Whipple with a story we call... Who do you think you are? Thank you. When I was about four years old, my family moved from Albuquerque, New Mexico to Salt Lake City, Utah. We were the first non-Mormon family to ever live on our block. So basically in the land of the Waltons, we were the Adams family. (laughs) And our neighbors never let us forget it. We were always outsiders. And my parents, they were very non-Mormon. They drank and smoked. And when I was about 13 years old, they did a real non-Mormon thing. They got a divorce. My dad moved out and mom started dating Mr. Cuddy Stark. I hated being an outsider. And I don't know, maybe it was accentuated by being a teen, but my mom, she seemed to relish in it. She would stand out in the front yard after work in her Sandy Duncan hair and her green pantsuit and her bright red lipstick. To this day, she's the only woman I know that could uh, put on lipstick while smoking a cigarette. But she'd water the plants as she'd water herself. And I was mortified because I was just coming into my own. I had a crush on David Cassidy and, and, and Bobby Sherman. And I, whenever we got the Sears catalog, I would open it up and go to the men's underwear section, hoping to see a bulge. Um, but I just didn't want to be known as the kid of a drunk. And I definitely didn't want to be known as the faggot kid of a drunk because I didn't want to get beaten up. But much like Kevin, I found my, my solace in theater. And my junior high school had a theater department. Now, in the fall of seventh grade, I was in English class. And the teacher, Mr. Barnes, he was standing up there. And he looked like a 30-year-old uh, Mormon missionary. 
white press shirt, black pants, um, his his special underwear, and he smelled weirdly like aqua velva and baby food. But he decided he was going to be hip and cool. So he was asking everyone, what do you want to be when you get older? I just didn't want to be called out. And he was going down my row. And Dennis Nelson was sitting in front of me. And Dennis, big dumb jock, he says, well, Mr. Barnes, after my mission, because they all, the boys, said after their mission, I want to be a basketball player. I just hope he would babble on or the bell would ring so I could get out of this. But no. (laughs) He gets to me, Mr. Whipple, what would you like to be? And I couldn't help it. I just said it. I said, I want to be an actor. And a couple of kids laughed, but he said, ah, ladies and gentlemen, we have a thespian among us. I panicked (laughs) because I heard of the female version of of lesbians, but I'd never heard of this male equivalent. How, How did he know? So we were in theater class that day, and our teacher, I just loved her, Mrs. Larson. She looked like a Gary Larson cartoon with her cat eye glasses and a bun on her head. She said, actors, I loved it when she called us actors. She said, actors, next Friday, you're going to come in and we're going to lip sync to a musical. And I want you to pick a song that shows who you are as an artist. I thought, okay, I've got to show these kids. I got to show English class. I got to show seventh grade. I got to show all Wasatch Junior High School that I was a thespian. I wanted to be an actor, but a closeted actor. So I went home that night and I'm sitting in the den and I'm going through my mom's LPs and she had a whole collection of musicals. And I was trying to decide and then I saw Camelot. And I loved Camelot. Mom took me to see it when I was just a couple of years ago. And the minute the overture started, it warmed my loins. So I was trying to decide, who should I be? Should I be... uh... Now, see, Camelot is an old school musical that... It's a period drama with lots of costumes and scandals and sex. So a gay boy would love it. And I was like, who am I going to be? Am I going to be King Arthur? and sing Camelot, or should I be Lancelot, uh, and, and sing C'est moi. And that's when mom walked in, drinking one hand, cigarette in the other. She says, honey, honey, what are you doing? So I told her, only in an angry way, I have to lip sync to a song at school who shows what I am as an artist. And mom... She got this mischievous grin on her face. And she says, oh, honey, you're funny. Do you know what I think you should do? I think you should be Lady Guinevere and sing the lusty month of May. Was she on to my thespianism too? Um, And I said, mom, that's the girl song. My mom wanted me to be the female lead. She wanted to be me to be Vanessa Redgrave. And she goes, oh, oh, honey, no, no, that that's funny. You're funny. I think you should take a chance. I think it would be hilarious. 
And I thought about it for a second. And I thought, you know, Uncle Milty, he does drag. And Flip Wilson was hilarious as Geraldine. And well, I mean, it was the early, the late 70s and all the comedians were doing drag. So I said, okay, I'll do it. And for the next week, after she came home from work, we practiced. And I was losing some of my anger and she was drinking less. And it was fun. We were having fun. We were finding our new normal in the divorce. Mom, she was a mix of Mama Rose and RuPaul. Giving me great direction. All right, honey, do this. Raise your hand up here and do this. Blow a kiss to the audience at this point. And she pulled out this straw gardening hat with long yellow fabric uh, scarves that you'd use to tie it to your head. And she's like, you gotta wear this. And we had so much fun. And I was able to kind of discover my gay boy thespianism in a safe way. And we were getting along. So that Friday came and I was so excited and so nervous. I got the straw hat and I, I put it in a brown paper sack, a grocery bag, and kept it hidden for the big reveal. Hit it on the bus, hit it at school, and the day drolled on and finally sixth period came, drama class. So I went in and I knew I was going to slay this. And they were gonna love it. So waited, waited, finally she calls my name and I run up there behind the, um, the red velvet curtain that was kind of musty smelling. And she was at the record player and I handed her the album, went and put on my hat. She's like, Kent, which, which one? And I said, number six. She gave me this look and she's like, are you sure number six? I'm like, yeah. I mean, she's a theater teacher. I thought she'd get how funny this was. So she put it on and the music started and I came out behind that red curtain. Tra-la, it's May, the lusty month of May. (laughs) Nothing, silence. And I thought, okay, they don't get it. They're, They're not quite there yet. So I spent the next two minutes and 58 painful seconds confusing a bunch of white teenagers who sat there aghast and giggling. And at the end, I thought, okay, I have to use every ounce of my feminine guile. And I actually sang out, the last month of May. Crickets. I was mortified. I was humiliated. There were some giggles, but they weren't laughing with me. They were laughing at me. And my teacher, she scratched the album as she was taking it off. And I took off the hat and put it in that sack. And I went back to the chair. It was humiliated. And I was mortified. I was fighting tears. And I had this salty taste in my mouth like I was going to throw up. And I thought, that's it, mom. You're fired as my agent. (laughs) I thought I'd probably be mad at her for the rest of my life. But I was remembering we, 
We had so much fun. And luckily, in class, there was a guy named Bill Brimley, who was in ninth grade. He was older, and he took pity on me, and he asked me to come over and hang out after class. And uh, as we're hanging out, he's like, you know, my dad's an actor. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, he's in movies all over the country, and he's on Broadway. And I thought that was so cool. So we were in Bill's room. I was in a yellow beanbag chair, and we were watching this orange lava lamp, listening to Dust in the Wind by Kansas, because it fit my mood. (laughs) When Bill's dad walked in, and he was this big guy, burly, with a mustache and a presence and this booming voice. And he's like, "Uh, hey, Bill. And he's like, oh, hey, Dad, this is Kent. Kent's an actor, too. (laughs) An actor, too. So at least I had Bill's respect. And, and Bill's dad, he was hanging at the, at the door with his hands above the, uh, the door frame. And he's like, so, Kent, what are you working on? What am I working on? So I told him. I told him the whole debacle. I said, I, I lip-synced to the lusty month of May. It was supposed to be funny. They hated it, and they hated me. And he stepped forward to me. And he looks at me, and he goes... Hmm. Fuck him. <laughs> he goes, you took a chance. That's what good artists do. You take chances. It didn't work. Now move on. <laughs> and then he says, Bill, it's time for dinner. <laughs> so as I was walking home, I had this whole mix of emotion. I was mad at mom. I was happy to be an actor. Didn't know how I was going to handle Sherry when I got to the house. And as I walked in the front door, she was there, drink in one hand, cigarette in the other. And I was trying to decide, how should I be? And she says, oh, honey, honey, how'd it go? And I took a deep breath, held my head up, and I said, I took a chance. That's what good artists do. I'm moving on. And I turn around on a dime and I started walking back to my room. And as I was walking, I heard her go, bravo, bravo, honey, bravo. (laughs) And about a year later, I was at the movies and I was watching China Syndrome. And I recognized the guy up there and definitely recognized the voice. It was Bill's dad, Wilford Brimley. And I thought, you know, it's the guy from Cocoon, the diabetes daddy, the Quaker Oats man. He gave me my artistic understanding. And my mom, oh, my mom, she came to all my terrible, terrible plays. Uh, Not sober, not once. But she sat in the front row and... She stood up at the end to start a standing ovation every time. And I thought, you know, Mr. Brimley was right about my mom. And they both were. Take a chance. Fuck them. Thanks. It's May.
misty month of May That lovely month when everyone goes blissfully astray It's here, it's here, that shocking time of year When tons of wicked little thoughts merrily appear It's May, it's May, that gorgeous holiday When every maiden itches for fun, wholesome or un It's wild, it's wild, it's The birds and bees with all of their vast amorous past Gaze at the human race aghast The lusty month of May Diabetes I've always had a complicated relationship with womanhood. Growing up, I never really felt connected to other girls. Be that because I was black in an all-white town, or queer in the buckle of the Bible belt, or artistic. And I tried, I tried to do the things girls did and act the way girls acted, but at the end of the day, it was just never sincere. The girl I was was this character I constructed so that people wouldn't get the chance to judge the real me. And so I spent years deep in the closet, even after I fell in love with the blonde girl in my dance group. When I fried my hair with relaxer, trying to be like other girls. I want to tell you about one of the few times I really felt like I was a part of that woman club. I was 21 at the time, and I was walking home at about 10.30 at night, and I get a text from my coworker. We'll call her M. Now, M is just a little bit younger than me, and at the time, we were friendly coworkers, but not friends by any means. I answer the text, and she has asked me, have you ever used a diva cup? Now, if you're not familiar, a diva cup is a silicone bulb that you insert into the vagina during menstruation, uh, and it catches the blood. It's very good for your body, very good for the environment, very progressive, very feminist, that kind of thing. Still using tampons and pads? There's an alternative that women are raving about. Switch to the diva cup. It provides up to 12 hours of leak-free protection. I have not used one, but the thing is, I got married young enough that people are actively mean about it, and I'm also a tall, non-threatening, big-titty black woman. And you combine these two things, people seem to think I'm wise, despite the fact I am a dumbass. So I'm used to white girls asking me for advice. I put on mammy mode, and I respond. I haven't personally ever used them, but I've heard really good things about it. What's up? Is something wrong? And she responds... I got a diva cup stuck inside of me. Will you help me take it out? Plus, it's easy to use, clean, and incredibly comfortable. I'm so glad my girlfriends told me about it. What had happened was, M, our little Icarus, had flown too close to the sun, lost her virginity the night before, thought she was grown, and was now squatting in her apartment, having a panic attack, pantsless, with a diva cup stuck inside of her. 
I later found out that the first person she contacted was her mother, who responded, This seems like a one-person problem. She then texted me. Now, like I said, I am used to being the person people come to for advice and favors, but this gave me pause. And I had to stop and think to myself, what am I willing to do for the sake of altruism? But as I thought it over more and more, it came down to just doing it or not doing it, and the implications of not doing it were so clear to me. This poor 20-year-old girl waddling into an ER because all the urgent cares are closed, having to put her legs in the stirrups for the first time, being surrounded by doctors and nurses who are all giggling because for them, this is silly. The only thing worse than being in a real crisis is when it's only a crisis to you. And I thought about her sitting and stewing in that shame and confusion and embarrassment until she forgot that she didn't do anything wrong. So I took a deep breath and responded. Meet me in my apartment in 45 minutes. Bring gloves. With plans set, it was now time to inform my poor husband who was waiting at home. I texted him simply, Im got a diva cup stuck inside of her, she's coming over for me to get it out. He googled a diva cup, read the first line and went, I don't need to be involved, and texted me back, okay, I'll lock myself in the office. So, I get home and it is now time to construct an area conducive to the procedure. I lay out some towels on my bed, I set up some pillows for back support, I grab some lanterns because the lighting was really bad in my bedroom. Overall, I think I made a pretty good 10 minute gynecological office if I do say so myself. I hear a knock at the door and I go in to answer it, and Emma is standing there, red and puffy face, obviously been crying for hours, and she hugs me and the first thing she says is, I'm sorry if I stink, I've been stress sweating. We go into the bedroom, she takes her pants down and sits down on the bed, and while I am putting on the gloves that she got me, which were ribbed for grip, she FaceTimes another one of our coworkers. We'll call her Jay. Now Jay's job was supposed to be to keep M calm through the procedure. But as soon as Jay answers the phone, she is cackling. When Jay finally calms down, M lays down on the bed and I put my hands on her knees, and as comforting as I can muster, I ask, Are you ready? And Jay falls apart again. M starts making this half-laugh, half-sobbing noise. When we finally calm down after like five minutes, she spreads her legs with much effort, and I am kneeling there, face-to-face -face with the labia majora of my coworker, and all I can think to myself is, Is this how it happens? Is this how I touch another person's vagina for the first time? Like, as a queer femme, I kinda thought there would be more candles or incense and less blood and crying. At this point in my life, I had spent years unlearning internalized homophobia, reading queer theory, listening to Hozier, and this is what I get? This is how it happens? As a poor man's gynecologist? But it was not the time for existential questions. It was a time for action. So I take a deep breath and dive in there. Jay starts laughing again, M clenches, and I immediately realize that diva cups go in way 
way further than I thought. This is gonna take a while. So after far too many minutes, I finally get my finger on the tail end of the Diva Cup, and I'm so excited that I just grab it and yank. Now, let me remind you that despite being a merry, tall, big-titty, non-threatening black woman, I am a dumbass. I had never used a Diva Cup before, and what I didn't know was Diva Cups work by forming a suction on the cervix. So when I yank, Em bolts off the bed, and she screams and looks up at me and goes, Why didn't you break the seal? And I break character just long enough to go, I didn't know there was one! We take a break for Em to recover from me ripping her cervix out of her body. Uh, we hydrate, we breathe, and we get back to it. After about 10 more minutes, I finally get to the Diva Cup again. And this time, I do break the seal. And as soon as I pull it out, Am bursts into tears and she chokes out through her sobs. I'm just so happy. This was the point where Jay decided to take a screenshot of their call. And to this day, that picture of M's blurry, red, puffy face with Jay laughing in the corner is still up on M's Instagram, along with a picture of us hugging, uh, with the caption, and I quote, Let me tell you a story, friends. Today, I got a diva cup stuck in my vagina, and my best coworker Ray fished it out for me. Yeet. You know, sometimes I resent being the mom friend. I resent having to take care of people, but I think about times like this, times I genuinely got to make someone feel safe and secure. And I think about all the times that I didn't have that. All those times I wished I had this mythical, magical, yonic sisterhood to hold me and guide me. Being a woman, becoming a woman, living as a woman, it's hard. It's painful and scary and alienating. It's hard, but there's no reason to make it harder by doing it alone. Truck, right in this little garage Make it cream, make me scream Out in public, make the scene I don't cook, I don't clean But let I, me tell you, I got I, this ring This is Risk This is Cardi B and Megan the Stallion behind me now 
Rayana thought it would be funny if we played this song after their story, and I realized I'd never heard the whole song. You know, it's in the news so much, and I heard snippets all over the place. But I was sitting here listening, and I was literally thinking, oh, man, must be nice not to have to spend so much money on loop. <laughs> anyway, before these gals, we heard from Rayana Christian Dickens, and you can find Rayana on Instagram at good underscore gal underscore Ray Ray. And Rayana's story was edited by our own John LaSala. Folks, it is happening. Risk is returning to the stage. We are having our first ever hybrid, in-person, and live-streamed caveat show in New York and online, 7 p.m., June 17th, great cast, and you can get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. And over at the storystudio.org, I see that in July, July 17th and July 18th, we have one of our Storytelling for Personal Growth workshops. Those are those special workshops for folks who are brand new and are just dipping their toes in and are not quite sure if they have, you know, story material yet and just want to kind of like start looking back at their memories. That is one of so many <laughs> ways to learn over at thestorystudio.org. So go check it out. Our final story on this week's episode it's one that we had kind of thought we might have lost years ago on account of audio problems, but we were able to put it all back together and in great shape. A remarkable story that was shared at our live show in Los Angeles a while back. This is Lizzie Cooperman, who you can find on Instagram at Lizzie Cooperman. Here she is now with a story we call I'm still in this not from the top make it drop that's some wet ass pussy not get a bucket in a mop that's some wet ass pussy I'm talking wop 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 that's some wet ass pussy macaroni in a pot that's some wet ass pussy huh Thank you so much. Um, so, I am the kind of person who likes to be alone. I live alone, I like to travel alone, I write alone, and uh, about a year and a half ago, I was kind of coming to peace with the fact that my mom had passed away, and I was really looking for stability. I was like, maybe I'll get a dog, maybe Invisalign. Who knows what miracles await me? Uh, so one night I went out drinking with friends, and uh, I woke up the next morning with a headache. But this was a weird headache. It felt like there was like a jabbing sensation in the back of my head. And then it felt like, you know when a cat goes like this to your boobs? <laughs> it was doing that, but like all over my head, and it didn't go away. 
So I went to urgent care and the doctor said, you need to get an MRI. It's like, okay. Uh, so I was like, I'll just go after work. I'll get an MRI. I was, I'm a spiritual person, so I was trying to like stay light about it. So I just went in there like I was getting a manicure, like, hi, I'm here for the seven o'clock MRI with Trish. Uh, so I lie down in the MRI machine and I'm thinking, maybe if I think positive thoughts, it'll yield a positive result. And I remember thinking to myself as they were sliding me and I was thinking, my mind is disrobing itself like a golden peacock. <laughs> as if that would somehow then send a message back to the past and then it would somehow heal me and then I, I, my MRI would come out negative. Like the MRI technician would be like, I see something there. Oh, wait, it's gone. But there is a golden bird. <laughs> uh, so then I had to wait for the results. And that's when the panic just really started to sink in. I was driving and I was like, oh my God, like all of a sudden I just felt the need to pull over and I just went on a Google tear. I was like, oh my God, what if I have a brain tumor? What does that mean? Okay, Mark Ruffalo had a brain tumor. He got through it. Maybe I'll just hold on to that. And so the next day I went back uh, for the results and the doctor said, well, you don't have a brain tumor. And I was like, oh my God. And he goes, but you do have what we call an incidental. And I was like, Inc like a hotel thing? Like, well, incidental, incidental. And he goes, you have a little mark here on your right frontal lobe. And I was like, oh, just like a Harry Potter scar? No. And he goes, you have a vascular malformation on your brain called a cavernous hemangioma, which to me just sounds like the name of like a boudoir photography studio, like, welcome to cavernous hemangioma. <laughs> Put on a negligee and let's play. Uh, so he said, you need to see a neurologist. So I scheduled an appointment with a neurologist and I had like a week of waiting time during which some very strange things started to happen to me. Uh, my pinky began to shake uncontrollably. I was at the grocery store and I reached for a can of green beans. And when I did, I was like, I am not in my body right now. This is not my hand. I started to have like an out of body experience. One night I started to feel these numb patches all over my body and I was like, I am going to walk to the diner down the street from my apartment, and this is the last walk of my life. I was like, I know I am dying. And I walked to this diner completely out of it, and I sat down, and I guess I spent two hours just spacing out in front of a tuna stuffed tomato. <laughs> because the waitress came up to me and she was like, honey, are you okay? And I was like, oh my God, I had no idea. So. Finally, I get to the neurologist. He looks at my scans and he goes, okay, uh, I think this thing on your brain is stable. I don't think you're going to need brain surgery, which I'm like, okay, that's a completely new frontier. And I said, okay, well, I'm also having a host of other problems. And I told him about everything. I told him about the pinky, the tuna stuffed tomato. <laughs> and he goes, honestly, he goes, I think this is all anxiety. He goes, I think what you need is a drink. I'm like, are you serious? And by the way, I had splurged on this neurologist. I looked up the guy who removed Elizabeth Taylor's brain tumor, thinking like, definitely then he's the best neurologist. 
Um, and he's going to tell me I need a, like something some guy at a bar is going to say to me, like, this lady, you really need a drink, sweetheart. Like, what are you going to ask me? Like, if I'm on Tinder, I'm like, Elizabeth Taylor wouldn't put up with this shit. <laughs> so then after that appointment, things started to go downhill. And they went downhill quickly. I was driving back from my friend's wedding, and I felt like there was acid being poured through my arms. I told my therapist at the time, and she said, you know, I think what this is, is that you, when your mom died, developed obsessive compulsive disorder, and this is all in your mind. She goes, I want you to take a piece of paper and write down, Judy says I'm paranoid, and hang it on the wall of your bedroom. So I had a sign in my bedroom that any time I was having symptoms, I could just look at and remind myself I was just insane. (laughs) Judy says I'm paranoid. Oh, great. That's all. By the way, I'm not working with her anymore. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. Um, So she also said, I think maybe you might want to try going to an orthopedic doctor. I don't know if anyone here has been to one of these doctors, but I didn't realize they're very, like, sporty. Like, I walked into this doctor's office, and it reminded me of that, like, section of Applebee's where they have, like, all the sports jerseys. And they were, like, blasting, we will rock you. And I was like, I will not rock you. I'm dying. I cannot physically rock you. So I went in to see the doctor, and I told him everything. I said, my arms, everything. And he goes, oh, he goes, I know what's wrong with you. He goes, you have bilateral cubital tunnel syndrome and mild rhabdomyolysis, but don't Google it. (laughs) By the way, Google, when you go home, Google rhabdomyolysis, you will see photos of people whose flesh is falling off of them in clumps. Uh, So he tells me I need to go to physical therapy for a month. So I spent a month of my life in physical therapy going like this with a yellow banner for this woman named Brigida who was like, that's right, sweetheart, you can do it. Uh, And I just kept getting worse. I knew this wasn't helping me. And I started to feel like I would go to bed at night and be like, my body feels like a haunted house right now. Like, all these weird things would happen. I was like, what window of my body is going to blow open? Like, what bone is going to start, like, shaking and, like, rattling uncontrollably? One night I had a spasm in my back, so intense that it shot me out of my bed like a piece of popcorn. During the next two months, I went to 22 doctors. 22 doctors. I was tested for lupus, HIV, rheumatoid arthritis, MS. I was tested for ALS twice. Uh, the doctor who tested me for ALS was super dismissive. Like They like do this thing where they kind of electrocute you. She was texting a friend. <laughs> And I was like, please get off your cell phone. I might have ALS. So at this point, I was like, I'm definitely dying. What am I going to do? So I was like, I guess I'm just going to try to like live big for now and see what happens. So I went away to this comedy festival in Portland. And one night, I just like drank a bunch. And I ended up hooking up with an old flame. And when I woke up in his hotel room the next morning, I could not feel my legs. I had to, like, shake my legs to feel any... Which is, like, a guy's dream. Like, she can't even walk now. No, uh, <laughs> it was really scary. Uh, so then I went back to L.A., and I was at work, and I all of a sudden, my nose, like, started to tingle, and I was like, this is a new symptom for me. 
I'd never had the symptoms. So I look it up and I'm like, okay, so I either have ALS or, and then I was like, oh my God. And I remember going into the bathroom at work and looking in the mirror and going, I have Lyme disease. I have Lyme disease. I felt on one hand, like I had just like caught this animal, like I have it. And then on the other hand, I was like, what now? So I started researching Lyme disease and it turns out only 50% of Lyme tests are accurate of the government issued tests, which means people are walking around thinking they have fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome. Some people with MS and ALS start treating for Lyme and they actually get better. People are misdiagnosed constantly. And the CDC, the Center for Disease Control says, if you treat Lyme with antibiotics for two weeks, you're done which is not the case. For most people, this disease is like a lifelong sentence. So then the insurance companies follow suit and everything that you pay for as a Lyme patient, it's like not only do people not believe you have it, but you end up paying for all the treatment out of pocket. So I go to this Lyme specialist and he was like, it's a good thing you got here when you did. Your blood is thick and you could have died of a blood clot. Your thyroid is destroyed. He sent me home with a gift basket. <laughs> he sent me home with a bucket of medication, including these like syringes because I had to give myself heparin shots now in the morning and at night. So I went home and I was like, okay, I guess, you know, this is my new life. So a friend of mine said, Lizzie, uh, I heard about this healer who heals people of Lyme disease. And at the time I was like, my spirituality was fading. And I was like, you know what? I'm too far gone. I just imagined some guy like in a drum circle, like, Lyme disease gods, or whatever. And then I'd go to him and they'd be like, do I feel better? So I was like, I'm not going to do that. And I didn't tell anybody uh, that I was sick. I told a few good friends, but mostly I was like, I'm just going to get through this. I'm going to be a good student. I'm going to take my medication and I'm going to get through this. And it's all going to just be a distant memory. And after about a year, I started to feel like I had it under control. I was like, okay, I think I can do this. And I was like, I am going to go on a trip to Hawaii. And this is going to be like my like recovery vacation. And I went to Hawaii and it was like beautiful and like life affirming. And this old man took me snorkeling and he was wearing these like black and white swim trunks. And we were in the water and I was like, we are the fish. <laughs> Just like having all these epiphanies. And I came back on a high I came back to LA and I decided to masturbate. <laughs> I laid down on my bed, I masturbated, and when I had an orgasm, everything went black, except for a yellow squiggly line. And then the room became very bright. And I was like, wow, that was a powerful orgasm. <laughs> I go into my bathroom and I'm like, oh my God, I look at my hand and I go, when my hand is here, I can see it. But when it's here, I can no longer see it. And I kept doing this with my hand. So I called some of my Lyme friends and I was like, have you ever lost your vision? And they said, no. I went to an eye doctor, everything was fine. I got another MRI. And when I got the results, I was sitting in a parking lot at work. And the doctor called me and I was sitting in my car with my paper and my pen and he said, you have had a brain hemorrhage in the occipital lobe of your brain, which is responsible for vision. You need to go to this clinic. 
I hung up the phone and my first thought was like, I am going to live a short life. A lot of people are like, oh, I wonder if I'll live till I'm 80. I was just like, I know, now I know. And my second thought was, I am going to live a sexless life. <laughs> like, I don't, what, what am I going to be? Like the Emily Dickinson of like comedians with Lyme disease? <laughs> like, who am I now? I don't know who I am. So I go to this clinic and there are all these like old people with walkers that have tennis balls. And I go in to see the doctor and I'm like, wow, there's so many old people here. And he goes, yes, that's because we treat people who have had strokes. And I go, oh, wow. And he goes, like you, you had a stroke. And I was like, you mean by stroking my, (laughs) I had a stroke, yes. He's like, and now, We need to figure out how a woman in her 30s had a stroke that was induced by orgasm. And I was like, well, I'll tell you, I poured myself some wine. (laughs) I lit a few candles. I tap it, I don't rub. Uh, (laughs) So I left that appointment and I was like, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I just had this feeling of like, I I don't want to live this kind of life. I just looked in front of me and I was like, my life is a mess. I don't want to do this. And on top of everything, I can't masturbate. <laughs> like, I'm so stressed out. And the one thing that would relieve, like, any kind of stress, I'm like, what's going to happen if I use three fingers? Am I going to have a heart attack? <laughs> and somewhere in my blood orgasm brain, I remembered that my friend had mentioned that healer. So I decided to do a phone call with this healer, and it was like a teleseminar. It was like people called in from around the world in all different time zones to listen to this Australian guy on the phone, and he supposedly can heal you with a certain frequency over the phone. So you get on the phone, and he's like, you don't understand. He's like, I am not healing you from Lyme. I will kill the bacteria. I will eradicate the bacteria. He's like, you will no longer have Lyme disease. And then suddenly it went quiet, And you heard this kind of air noise go. And then it goes, that was the healing with Master John Douglas. It's like, whoa, like, did he, did he kill the bacteria? Did he do it? And he also sat on the phone. He was like, it's going to take three to six months for you to like clean it out of your system once you're done. And uh, you know what? That actually brings me to the present. Last week, I went to New York to see a Lyme literate neurologist who I read about in a medical journal. He told me he was going to listen to this podcast, so hi, Dr. Younger. Uh, I hope your son Adam's doing well. I listened to your phone call. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so that kind of brings me to the present, and I am feeling a lot better. I think, you know, maybe the healing worked, maybe it didn't. But the whole thing is like, I'm still in this. You know, I'd like to end a story by being like, And that's when I realized I did need people. And I'm getting Invisalign or whatever. (laughs) And I'm lying free. Uh, But I'm not there yet. So I just want to leave you with three things. Uh, One, I did have a sexual experience since that incident. (laughs) Thank you. A uh, a very kind neighbor of mine offered to go down on me. (laughs) Thank you. And... uh, I said, only if you agree that if something bad happens, you'll give me a lift to Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital. Uh, He said yes, and then ate me out. Uh, Number two, I want to say, 
keep Googling. If you think there's something wrong, keep going after it, keep learning. Because I would rather be neurotic and healthy than dead, but totally at peace with myself. <laughs> um, and three is something that I learned through this experience is that you don't really know what other people are going through. Like, this was an invisible illness. People were like, but you're okay, right? Like, you look fine, and I wasn't. So just when you look at people, it's good to think about what's your plight? What are you going through? Because it's quite possible that someone you spoke to a minute ago just had a mind-blowing orgasm. <laughs> Thank you so much. Paradise is exactly like where you are right now. For this week's episode, folks, this is one of my heroes. Behind me now, Lori Anderson. If you can believe it, that's a live concert recording from her concert film, Home of the Brave. And before that, we also heard Lizzie Cooperman live on stage. <laughs> Lizzie, again, can be found on Instagram at Lizzie Cooperman. I checked in with Lizzie to see how she's doing with all of that stuff now. And she said, I'm still in this. So, you know, like I really do, after 11 years of doing this show, think that that saying that a lot of storytelling teachers throw around, tell stories from your scars and not from your wounds. I would take that advice with a grain of salt. Hey, folks, if you would like to share an anecdote on the show, we are always collecting them. You know, one of those short stories that focus mostly on just one incident. You can find everything you need to know about that at risk-show.com slash anecdotes. And if you want to pitch a longer story, just go to risk-show.com slash submissions. Also, follow us on our socials. We're at Risk Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. The Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook is a great place to talk about the show with other fans. 
And did you know that you can hire me personally for storytelling training? I am currently helping someone with his podcast, someone else with his memoir, lots of interesting sessions. And, uh, you know, I've taught lawyers and doctors and preachers, teachers, activists, life coaches, you name it. You can find me at kevinallison.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Well, I dream there was an island that rose up from the sea. And everybody on the island was somebody from TV. And there was a beautiful view, but nobody could see. Because everybody on the island was saying, That's why over 90% of women who tried the Diva Cup said they'd recommend it. I'm so glad my girlfriend showed me. It's the right thing to do. Not too expensive either. <laughs>